This is Our American Stories, and Americans are expected to spend over $9 billion this year on Halloween, making it the second biggest commercial holiday behind only Christmas. More than half of American homes will be decorated on Halloween, and practically every American child will carve a pumpkin and go trick-or-treating. And no Halloween would be complete without a costume party or a visit to your local haunted house filled with ghouls and ghosts and plenty of staged blood. Today, we're going to bring to light the stories that have been hiding in the dark, answering the question, why do we do these strange things every Halloween? Brayden, go up there and say trick-or-treat. Trick-or-treat! Oh, there you go. What do you say? You're welcome. How do we describe Halloween without sounding insane? Mass children come to our doors and threaten us with a trick if we don't give them a treat. But why do we do this? And why do we carve faces into pumpkins, then light the candles inside? And why do we adorn our houses with coffins and tombstones? The truth is, we take great pleasure in scaring ourselves to death. This impulse is ancient. And so are our treasured Halloween traditions. Here's Talk Thompson, who teaches a ghost story seminar at USC. And its ancient origins go back to the old Celtic calendar. And the old Celtic tribe divided the year between a light half and a dark half. And uh, Samhain, their ancient holiday, was a precursor to our Halloween. It was the beginning of the dark half. Centuries before Christ, A tribe of warriors called the Celts celebrated their Samhain festival with bonfires on the night of October 31st across most of Europe and throughout the British Isles. The Samhain harvest represented the transition from the summer to the winter, and they were at the mercy of the elements. For these ancient peoples, it was a matter of life and death, and winter was the scariest season of them all. But the Celts believed there was even more to Samhain. Here's Leslie Bannatyne, author of Halloween Nation. It was a bit of a warning. You know, it's going to get cold and dark. Gather together, come home, and don't send anybody out alone in the dark. Here's USC history professor Lisa Biddle and Halloween historian David Skall. What marked Samhain and this transition from light to dark was that time and space became permeable, flexible. And so that spirits not only of the dead, but of the past or of other realities could sort of wander into our reality and humans could wander out and get lost in the other world as well. The veil between life and death was at its thinnest and the living and the dead could commingle. And that's at the the root of all the Halloween celebrations. On Samhain night only, the Celts believed those who had died in the past year walked the earth once more. But not every visiting ghost was friendly. So the Celts devised ways to appease these spirits. Here's professor of religion at Princeton University, Elaine Pagels comes from this very archaic sense that the dead return. You have to placate them, you have to do something with them, or they might might return and stay, they might trouble you and, you know, haunt you in various ways. 
To appease these spirits, the Celts would parade out to the edge of their villages with offerings of food and sweets as gifts for the dead, trying to coax the evil forces away from their homes. Here's Jack Santino, author of Halloween, Death and Life. The belief in death, the belief in the wandering spirits, the idea of dressing up in costumes and being allowed to perform mischief and pranks much as supernatural creatures would. Much of our contemporary Halloween traditions seem to be reflected in this ancient Celtic holiday called Samhain. The truth is, we know very little about Samhain. But what we do know is that their bonfires drew one familiar icon, the bat. In older times, people had bonfires on Halloween. Mosquitoes attracted to the bonfires and the bats attracted to the mosquitoes and probably the owls. Um, So you could see them flying over the Halloween bonfires and they became associated with the holiday. How did these ancient traditions survive into our modern era? They were preserved by the Catholic Church. By the 7th century, the Catholic Church had spread throughout most of Europe. Missionaries, including St. Patrick, who would become the patron saint of Ireland, had successfully converted the pagan Celts. The church had found that conversion was far more successful when attempts were made to offer clear alternatives to existing calendar celebrations, rather than simply stamping them out. It was a tactic used under Pope Gregory I to convert more pagans. He said, if you should come across a group of people worshipping a tree, said rather than cut the tree down and tell them that they were ignorant and in error, said instead, consecrate it to Christ and tell them to keep meeting as they were accustomed to meeting at the same spot. A key pagan festival destined to get a Catholic makeover was Lemuria, a Roman festival of the dead on May 13th where they performed rites to exorcise the malevolent and fearful ghosts from their graves. Here's Brown University professor of Roman history, Nicola Lewis. Of all the different days that they have in the Roman calendar to celebrate the dead, it was the spookiest. So on the Lemuria, what are called the larvae, the ghosts of the departed would come up um, and haunt people. The church co-opted Lemuria in 609, turning May 13th into what they called All Saints Day, also known as All Hallows Day, the word hallow being equivalent to saint. All Hallows Day honored the most holy of dead Catholics, those saints who attained heaven. All Hallows Day was such a success that church leaders made a decision to drain the life out of Samhain. So, they moved All Hallows' Day from May 13th to November 1st. Because of this move, people started calling Samhain All Hallows' Evening because it was the evening before All Hallows' Day. And this quickly shortened into All Hallows' Eve and finally into Halloween. And when we come back, more on the story of how Halloween came to be. This is Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we continue with Greg Hengler and his piece on how Halloween came to be. People continued to dress in straw costumes or in animal skins, continued to put out offerings for the souls of the dead who were traveling at that particular time, continued to do much of what they had been accustomed to doing, but now doing it under the name of Halloween rather than under the name of Samhain. And then, to be safe, in the 10th century, the Catholic Church went one step further, adding a holiday to not just honor the saints in heaven, but all Catholics who died and had yet to reach heaven. So November 2nd became All Souls Day. In Mexico, this day is called the Day of the Dead. It's a blend of Spanish Catholic influences mixed with pre-existing pagan Indian elements. This is real important for Halloween because this is where Halloween gets its association with dead souls, death, and the supernatural again. The Catholic Church also established the tradition of trick-or-treating. It all started in the Middle Ages on All Souls Day when priests told church members to pray for souls trapped between heaven and hell in an intermediate world they call purgatory or final purification. Purgatory is not a pleasant place. It's not hell. It's not as bad as hell is, but it's still probably pretty fiery. Souls are kind of suffering there. Luckily, there is something that you could do. You could offer up prayers for them. So how do souls get out of purgatory? According to the church, if enough prayers were offered, a soul would be released up to heaven. Because of this, children would go souling, begging for soul cakes, which were spiced cakes filled with raisins. In return for these treats, the children and some adults would offer up prayers for souls trapped in purgatory. While this forerunner to trick-or-treat became a preoccupation for the medieval church, so did another future essential of Halloween, witches. Here's historian Steve Gillen. It made perfect sense for people in medieval times to believe that there were demons and witches. And if there were demons and witches and they were responsible for bad things in the world, it made sense that you hunt them down and you kill them. That was their worldview. A witch panic that climaxed in the late 16th century established the look of the character. Almost always a woman, witches were seen as the devil's handmaiden bent on evil and destruction. Here's Lisa Morton, author of the fascinating book, Trick or Treat, A History of Halloween. And a lot of the symbols that were associated with these women, who probably often lived alone, uh, may have been somewhat eccentric, of course, end up becoming associated with witches. In 1486, Pope Innocent VIII published a book claiming a direct link between witchcraft and the devil. He then outlawed the pagan Celtic religion altogether. Over time, Even the practical cooking tools used by all acquired sinister dimensions and became model Halloween icons, thanks to witches. Even something mundane as a broom became an instrument of evil, as well as handy transportation. 
Another accessory in every witch's lair was perfect for brewing devilish potions, the cauldron. Here's a clip from the 1956 Looney Tunes episode starring Bugs Bunny and the incredibly vain and hilarious Witch Hazel. Double, double, toil and trouble, fire burn and cauldron bubble. <laughs> Not bad. Cauldrons become very popular. Again, it was something that every household had in medieval ages. It was your basic cooking implement. The pointed witch's hat was a variation on a country woman's hat. And, of course, even the animals associated with witches took on a demonic character. Here's historian Libby O'Connell. It's not surprising that cats are associated with witches and Halloween. Cats can be a little enigmatic. Um, You don't really know what's going on in their head. Also, they used to hang out near the hearth and by the brooms. So they became associated with witchcraft and with Halloween. This period saw the continued influence of one of Halloween's most well-known icons, the mask, which also appeared in tandem with another unfortunate Halloween tradition, destructiveness. Beggars on All Hallows' Eve guzzled their share of alcohol and demands for food and drink became a bit threatening. Masks helped hide their identities. In Britain, they got into some very particular forms that involved dressing in costumes and going house to house to present these little plays. And at the end of the performance, they would be rewarded with food and sometimes money. By the early 16th century, the Catholic Church was undergoing enormous changes. On Halloween Day in 1517, Exactly 500 years ago, Christian revolutionary Martin Luther nailed his famous 95 Theses to the door of the Wittenberg Castle Church, attacking Catholic dogma. By launching the Protestant Reformation, Luther changed the face of Christianity and Halloween forever. He rejected all those symbols that stood between worshipers and God, including popes, priests, and saints. So, when saints went out of favor, so did All Saints Day and, of course, All Hallows' Eve. But the holiday was too popular to go away completely. In 17th century England, these customs survived only in rural areas. But thanks to a Catholic militant named Guy Fawkes, they would soon turn up in the city streets. On November 5th, 1605, Fox tried to blow up the Protestant-dominated House of Lords with 36 kegs of gunpowder. His plan was to assassinate King James I and restore a Catholic monarch to the throne. Guy Fox was tried, found guilty, and hanged. And according to legend, His body was then drawn and quartered, and the pieces were thrown into a fire. The next year on the anniversary of the failed plot, and the years following, London's children and adults mocked the memory of Guy Fawkes by causing chaos in the streets, parading, begging, and building bonfires. 
Today in England, this is called Guy Fox Day, or Bonfire Night. The custom that has evolved over the centuries in England is for children to make effigies of Guy Fox, and then Guy Fox is burnt on a bonfire. They spend several weeks prior to November 5th with their dummies and asking people for a penny for the guy. It's a begging tradition, not unlike trick-or-treating in its own way. But would this pagan celebration make its way across the Atlantic to disrupt the sanctuary of the New World? For the Bible-believing Puritans of New England, the supernatural was a dark, menacing force, not a harmless superstition worthy of a yearly holiday observance. They considered Halloween too pagan and too Catholic. The Protestants, being rebels, broke away from the Church of England because they believed it was too Catholic. And they left England for the colonies for this reason, and so they didn't want to carry anything with them that had to do with Catholicism, and Halloween was something that had to do with Catholicism. By the mid-19th century, America was primed for a much darker holiday. Having endured four long years of civil war that ended in 1865 with over a half a million dead. There were so many unclaimed, unknown dead bodies that the civil war left behind that this country was obsessed with death. And mostly it was that so many of these soldiers died unknown. We don't know what happened to them. So there was a huge sense of they could come back. Maybe they're not dead. It makes perfect sense that people would tell more ghost stories. And the very first Halloween ghost stories were about people coming back home. It's at this time America's Halloween story begins. And when we come back, America and Halloween, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with our Halloween story, Halloween Comes to America. After the Civil War in Virginia, which hosted a large Catholic and Anglican population, the holiday thrived when Scottish and Irish immigrants brought their rural Old World Halloween customs with them, and they helped to establish even more American Halloween traditions. For the Scots, it was a little bit of a scarier night. Until fairly late, we're still talking about the appearance of bogies on Halloween. Bogies, or boogeymen, were ghosts used by adults to frighten children into good behavior, especially around Halloween time. They were said to be hiding under beds, 
tapping on windows or lurking by a gate. Halloween's signature symbol, the jack-o'-lantern, also began as a European tradition, but the prototype wasn't carved from a pumpkin. There's a great legend about a character named Jack-o'-lantern. And Jack was a troublemaker, but he was so bad, he even managed to get himself thrown out of hell, which is not an easy thing to do. But the devil did decide to have pity on him and scooped up an ember from the fires of hell and gave it to him. So Jack takes the ember and he puts it inside a hollowed out turtle. And he walks around and that becomes the legend of Jack O'Lantern. In one age-old European practice, children would carve their own jack-o'-lanterns out of turnips and light them with candles. Here's historian Donna Curtin. The first reference we have in the United States to jack-o'-lantern comes from Nathaniel Hawthorne, and he's writing in Twice Told Tales, and he's describing someone's very tattered coat full of holes, and when you hold it up to the light, it shines like a jack-o'-lantern would. Planted in July and harvested in October, Americans substituted the big round orange pumpkin for the old world's hard little turnips. And Halloween finally had its trademark. The ghastly face of Halloween was reimagined in gruesome shades of orange and black at the turn of the 20th century. For the first time, Artists of the era brought together all things scary and linked them to Halloween. Skeletons, spiderwebs, jack-o'-lanterns, and bats. They all established the look of Halloween that we still use today. Among these icons is the white sheeted ghost. The sheet that a ghost wears derives from uh, the winding sheet, the shroud that corpses were traditionally wrapped in before burial. Horned devils came from medieval depictions of Satan and witches from witch-hunting hysteria that swept through Europe and Puritan America. Witches became very popular in the early part of the 20th century, which is why they naturally became linked to Halloween. And there's actually a change in the way we perceive witches. The witches... Uh, the 19th century were old, they had big noses and there were warts, and the witches in the 20th century are actually it's kind of attractive. It makes Halloween just a little, not only scary, but also a little naughty. But even as Halloween was dressing its old customs in new costumes, it was also creating new traditions. Bad ones. In the early 20th century, Halloween was getting out of hand. Young vandals were destroying private property and causing mischief on Halloween to the dread of the locals and police departments all over America. If Halloween were to survive, it would have to change. Schools and police departments and other civic groups consciously and very actively promoted the idea of taming Halloween. And so they started to invent all sorts of things for kids to do, to divert them. Townwide parties, costume contests, games, everything that you could think of to get the kids away from pulling tricks and into the light. Novelty companies like Denison Company helped out these civic efforts. 
Dennison published a series of Halloween booklets called Bogey Books that suggested ways of turning Halloween from a prank night into a party night. Dennison was one of the first companies that realized there was money to be made off of Halloween. They started to put their own Halloween materials out for retail sale in drugstores all over America. Dennison also sold masks and paper costumes. It was the first time costumes were specifically made and marketed for Halloween. Before that, costumes had all been homemade. Soon, other manufacturers looking to tap into the kid market for Halloween began making more durable costumes. Sears' first box costumes came around 1930, and then it it went from there. And the costumes came off of radio show characters and the funny papers. Costumes for parties, costumes for wild, town-wide parties, and for school parties and church parties. Halloween was a big social occasion. Halloween parades also helped drag the holiday out from the shadows and into the public arena. Allentown, Pennsylvania, may have been the first parade in 1905, but others soon followed. Tom's River, New Jersey in 1919, and the little town of Anoka, Minnesota in 1920. Anoka residents got tired of waking up on November 1st to find their cattle roaming on Main Street. A result of Halloween pranking, So, Anoka Civic Leaders instituted a program of Halloween parades, giveaways, and bonfires. Anoka has held its parade every year since. In fact, the city with a population of 17,000 now bills itself the Halloween capital of the world. Storyteller extraordinaire Garrison Keeler creator of the Minnesota public radio show A Prairie Home Companion, remembers what it was like growing up in the Halloween capital of the world. There was a big granite chip mosaic on the corner of 2nd Avenue and Main Street that said, Anoka, Minnesota, Halloween capital of the world, and a black witch in the center of it, so there was proof. The reason for Halloween in Anoka, the big civic part of it, the children in their costumes marching down the street, was to try to blunt or thwart um, the tradition of vandalism, mischief, which was the other side of Halloween, of course. You could toilet paper somebody's house, and I don't know if you've ever tried to get wet toilet paper out of a very tall maple tree, but uh, after you've done that, you start to believe in capital punishment. Each of these local efforts to tame Halloween worked to some extent, but what Halloween really needed was a whole new tradition, and it would soon get one. Trick-or-treat is amazingly new. People think trick-or-treat goes back for centuries, and it doesn't. Trick-or-treat is actually less than 80 years old, probably. Um, The term derives from pranking that was very widespread and destructive in America in the 20th century. And at some point, somebody came up with the brilliant idea of buying off these pranksters. 
Homeowners bribed rowdy kids with homemade treats such as popcorn balls and candy apples to avoid getting pranked or tricked. In 1939, the phrase and the custom turned up in print. Doris Hudson Moss published an article in American Home Magazine that talked about the success she had having a Halloween open house for the kids in her neighborhood. She didn't get tricked. She gave them sweets. It all worked. And when we come back, the final segment, our Halloween story here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we return to Greg Hengler and his very special reporting on Halloween, its origins, how it came to America, and now the final part of this story. Trick or treat, trick or treat, trick or treat for Halloween. With new customs came new treats. Now kids began getting store-bought pre-packaged candies. Mars bars, Reese's Cups, M&M's, and good old Hershey's chocolate. Candy finally killed the rowdy Halloween. And now the time was right for the reinvented holiday to hit Hollywood. Hollywood has forever made movies from the creepy to the comical. Here's the 1952 Disney short titled Trick or Treat starring Donald Duck. Donald's nephews, Huey, Dewey, and Louie, approach their uncle's door for a Halloween treat. Uh-oh, but Donald drops a trick into the boys' pillowcases. Lit firecrackers. And then follows it up by dropping on them a bucket of water that's been dangling above their heads. In 1966, just a year following A Charlie Brown Christmas, Halloween stature zoomed off the charts when America went trick-or-treating with Charlie Brown. Here's executive producer of the Peanuts animated specials, Lee Mendelson. The whole idea of the Great Pumpkin, of course, came from the comic strip when Sparky Schultz decided that it would be very funny if one of the kids got his holidays mixed up. And uh, so that's how Linus ends up in the pumpkin patch every year. Who are you writing to, Linus? This is the time of year to write to the Great Pumpkin. On Halloween night, the Great Pumpkin rises out of his pumpkin patch and flies through the air with this bag of toys for all the children. You must be crazy. When are you going to stop believing in something that isn't true? When you stop believing in that fellow with the red suit and the white beard. Halloween night. A small American town. Fifteen years ago. Halloween-themed cartoons were one thing. A movie for adults with Halloween as its theme was another. 
Nobody had ever tried it before. That is, until director John Carpenter took a stab at it in 1978 with the simply titled classic, Halloween. Michael? Here's John Carpenter. The idea for calling my film Halloween came from the distributor. And when he said it, I thought, you know, he's absolutely right. There's never been really a Halloween-themed film. It's one of those eye-openers. Wow, why didn't I think of that years ago? What a great idea. Carpenter's $325,000 film about Michael Myers, a silent killer who escapes from a mental institution on Halloween, would spawn a franchise grossing more than $500 million. It also elevated the horror film from B-movie status to a respected genre. The slasher film also redefines speed. We learn that no matter how fast you run, Michael Myers walks faster. Carpenter's self-composed Halloween theme became recognizable apart from the movie. Here's John Carpenter and his band performing his iconic Halloween theme in Los Angeles at the Bootleg Theater in 2016. Horror movies will live forever. And completely by accident, Carpenter's film would also redefine our attitudes about Halloween masks. It started when the wardrobe budget forced the crew to create a mask for the villain for next to nothing. Here again is John Carpenter. The production designer ran up to Burt Wheeler's magic shop on Hollywood Boulevard and bought this Captain Kirk from Star Trek mask, which didn't look anything like William Shatner, just this strange face, elongated face. But it was spray painted and, and, and fixed up a little bit. It was distorted, which is perfect. It's kind of written that way in the script, as wearing a face. The bargain basement mask and the villain behind it soon became another Halloween icon. Today, that trend has escalated to an obsession. Nail-biting knockoff film franchises like A Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, Scream, and Halloween are inspiring growing legions of kids to dress to kill. Masks take their inspiration from pop culture, religion, politics, sports, you name it. And a growing number of faces behind them belong not to kids, but adults. Halloween has become a huge adult activity, and I I don't think that was uh, the case, say, 50, 60 years ago. But it's been, again, specifically set aside where you can be somebody that you normally aren't. Uh, You can get behind a mask, you can wear clothes you would never wear during the rest of the year, uh, and people enjoy these get those children who are now growing up and they become very nostalgic for Halloween. So Halloween shifts again, starts to become more of an adult holiday. 50 years ago, when you were too old to trick or treat, you probably had to stay home and hand out candy. There was nothing else for you to do. Now there is a vast and imaginative haunted house industry just for you. And there's something like 4,000 haunted houses in the United States every year. Here again is John Carpenter. I loved haunted houses. 
fascinated me. They terrified me as a kid. But haunted houses aren't the only activity for adults on Halloween. From the two million people attending New York City's Greenwich Village Halloween Parade to the half a million attending West Hollywood's Halloween Carnival, the holiday takes a walk on the wild and naughty side. If you look at the costumes that are sold to adults these days, the costumes for women are all kind of borderline prostitute costumes. You know, the sexy nurse, the sexy maid, the sexy anything. Clearly, a lot of women want to have a very sexy side of them, and it's only on Halloween that they bring it out. Maybe, you know, they could do a little more often. Not surprisingly, alcohol plays a huge role in Halloween's popularity. So much so that by the 1990s, beer sales for Halloween surpassed both the Super Bowl and St. Patrick's Day. Halloween's popularity is also due to the fact that it embodies the American obsession with self-transformation, being who you aren't or who you would like to be. Trick-or-treaters remain on high alert today. And just as Halloween has scared kids for years, Halloween scares parents too. They fear sending their kids out into a hostile world of trick-or-treats full of poisoned candy and razor blade riddled apples. Reynoldsburg police confirm it was a razor blade found in a piece of candy. They're recommending you spread out all of your children's candy and inspect each piece. I grew up hearing about razor blades and apples myself. And it's clearly what we would call a contemporary legend. Uh, another term is urban legend. There's a great societal unease about this idea that we're telling our kids to go take candy from strangers. So there's a lot of stories about razor blades and candied apples and, and these sorts of things. Uh, and parents every year get very, very worried about it. Did razor blades and apples ever happen? Uh, I believe there are a couple of cases, but of course you can ask which came first, you know, the story or the actions. Razor blades and apples, jack-o'-lanterns, soul cakes. They make up the legends, the texture of the Halloween we know. Today, Halloween wears many masks, yet, it still remains the domain of kids. When you're a kid, you had one night a year where you were in charge, you got to dress up, you got to be something that you usually weren't, and you kind of even got paid for the privilege of this. It was an amazing holiday. Look closely, and you will see Halloween is a showcase for everything the human race fears. Through the centuries, we've learned to live and tame that which scares us most. It's invigorating, it's sensual, there's a freedom to it that is very, very enjoyable. At the same time, it's ritualized. You can do this at a certain time, a certain place. Some of the images of Halloween, some of the decorations, if people would have put them out at any other time of the year, their neighbors would call the police. But at Halloween, you're allowed to take these very disturbing kinds of ideas and deal with them directly. There's a great liberation, a great sense of freedom to that. It is on this day of freedom that Americans turn their fears into fun. I'm Greg Hengler. And we here at Our American Stories would like to wish you and yours a very happy and safe Halloween. And great job as always on that, Greg. And my favorite part of the art, I'd read Hawthorne and I was an American lit major. I did not know he introduced the jack-o'-lantern into America. 
Again, thanks for those details, Greg. A lot of work goes into pieces like this. And you can hear all that we do here on Our American Stories. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. The Halloween story here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our One Mom versus the Machine series. And we previously brought you Kathy Hamilton's story of taking down the corrupt board and president of her local community college. And also Marva Collins' story of becoming disillusioned teaching in Chicago's public schools and deciding to take all of her life savings, $5,000, to start her very own school. She caught the attention of President Ronald Reagan and 60 Minutes. And now, today's feature, which comes to us from our field correspondent, Alex Cortez. This Ohio mom is a Spanish teacher at a public high school. Someone put a nail in my tire three times at school. Okay, now, I wasn't where I could prove it. I didn't have film. But the first time a nail was in my tire at school, I didn't even think about it. The second time... Within that same fall, it happened. I thought, okay, am I running over something? The third time it happened at school, I went out and my tire was flat. I thought, okay, what, what's going on here? Her name is Jade Hamilton, and she didn't always want to become a teacher. I was very fortunate, um, and it was by serendipity. I met a woman here at Marietta College. I had moved here from Washington, D.C. with my husband, and I just had a new baby. And I had previously worked on Capitol Hill and loved it. So I was moving from being a full-time professional to a full-time mom in a small um, town. And I was I didn't have very many friends, and I, I was struggling to find my identity. And... When I met her, she was the new head of the Department of Modern Languages at Marietta College. So what she, after talking to me and finding out that I had traveled, studied abroad, and my dad was in the Foreign Service, and I'd lived in Chile and Argentina, and I'd lived in Brazil and Central America, Nicaragua, Honduras, El Salvador, and then in Africa, and then in Spain. Okay, so she said, "You, you, can you teach an adjunct class, which is on a per-class basis? I said to her, I, I'm not, I didn't go to school to be a teacher. And she said, you know, many people who go to school to be a teacher are not good teachers. She said, you have all this life experience. Wouldn't you just try? And try Jay did, teaching in college while she was getting her master's degree in teaching. And Jade has continued to bring all of her amazing experiences right into the classroom. Although it hasn't always exactly been what she was expecting. 
Many of our students just want to Google the answers, and they don't have a zeal for the actual mastery of the subject. But she tries to break through. I try to do what I call a song and dance. I see myself as a link in the chain. I'm the beginning teacher or the, you know, the secondary school teacher, and hopefully they will turn it, they will be turned on and take it in college. So I take my responsibility there. I try to be happy. I try to be in a good mood. I try to not, not entertain my kids because I can be hard on them, but I try to get them interested in, oh, wow, oh, I could do this, or, oh, Mrs. Thompson, and they'll come and say, did you see this soccer player, or did you see this music, this band that came out, and this song? Sadly, Jade would find out that not all of her colleagues had this same enthusiasm for her after she asked what she thought was a very basic question about the union that they belonged to and that did the collective bargaining for their pay packages, which, by the way, she was fine with. I started to wonder, what is my $800, $900 a year going toward, does it take that much money? Do the math and calculate that times all the people. We have, I think, three um, elementary schools, a middle school, and a high school. That's a lot of money to collective bargain. How, how hard is it? How long does that take? And you do it for about a year. You know, I started asking questions and wondering, and wonder she should. If you're a mom like Jade, trying to make ends meet for your family, you gotta look at every expense, especially one that's eight to nine hundred dollars a year. Jade's calculation is that it should cost about two hundred sixty dollars a year, both for the liability insurance that helps protect teachers in the event of a lawsuit against them, and for the collective bargaining. She knows that she can get private liability insurance for less than two hundred dollars a year. And the nature of collective bargaining is that it isn't an ongoing yearly cost. Usually they bargain your contract and it's good for five years or, you know, it's, it's not every single year they're bargaining. Jade isn't anti-union. In fact, she was a full dues-paying member of the union. But the mom and her kept coming across things. It really upset me when, at a certain point, a teacher showed me where the money goes on the national scale. You know, like, so 177 goes straight to the National Education Association. That's the national one. 177 of my dollars. The local union passes along this amount of Jade's dues to this national arm of the union. Well, okay, you're hearing about what kind of salaries they have. Almost 50 people making over $200,000. Then they may have a convention or an event in, in Las Vegas, and they, they stay in these hotels. I'm like, wait a minute, okay, where is this coming from? Well, you take Jade's $177 times 124,000 Ohio teachers making the same payment, and you get... $21,948,000 from Ohio to the National Union. And by the way, in case you forgot, Ohio's one of only 50 states. 
In Jade's statewide union, the Ohio Education Association, the OEA, is living quite differently, too. When you find out all the, the list of salaries for the OEA, I, I think there are two, two pages, full pages of salary for the Ohio Education Association. And probably the lowest paying person makes two or three times what I make as a teacher. So when I started to look at, okay, what's the OEA president make? Near $200,000. Well, in Ohio, a salary of $200,000 is luxury. I mean, you know, you're, you're a doctor, a lawyer, you maybe make that, but not normal people. And when we come back, this not normal mom starts to really dig in. This is Lee Habib, One Mom versus the Machine, Jade Hamilton's story here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we return to our One Mom versus the Machine segment, Jade Hamilton's story. And when we had left off, she had talked about how the salary she was seeing for the state union just weren't normal. Well, this not-so-normal mom, she was about to really dig in. Like all things in life, from business to government, normal people closer to home are more accountable. And because of this, they also perform better. Why can't it be a professional organization of people that knows our school that we employ somebody local why does it have to be national and why does my money have to go to the national and then the oea the union would respond that state and national folks have unique expertise that not every local union could provide they quite simply know better and and it's an argument that has some merit but sometimes they act like they know better too You start getting, during political cycles, magazines from the OEA. Okay, they have a monthly magazine that comes out, and it is, it's right, they they just, sorry to say it this way, cram it right down your throat. They tell you who to vote for. Well, I take offense, don't tell me who to vote for. Whether you're a Republican, a Democrat, or Green Party, none of us want to be told who to vote for let alone through these means. Who's paying for this magazine? I am. I'm paying the the propaganda that comes my way, and it's a slick magazine. Okay, so I don't want to pay for that. I don't mind paying for collective bargaining. And then, one day, all these political activities became all too personal. I never really got involved, but I didn't make a stand or do anything, and I didn't like it at all. But then what happened was my husband was a city councilman. He decided to run for state representative. When he ran for state representative, um, what the union started doing was sending all these ads out against my husband that were very mocking and political in nature. And um, They were going to my mom's household. My mom was alive at the time. And, you know, in the return box paid for by the campaign for moderate majority. And then in parentheses, OEA, S-E-I-U. Like, okay, wait, the OEA in Columbus? 
the union that she was part of was taking her money and using it to oppose and mock her very own husband. And of course, without her permission to spend her hard-earned money this way. It was like an epiphany of, are you kidding me? This, that's like a major slap in the face. Jade's husband was running as a Republican, but to her, that should have made no difference at all. Um, I wouldn't want a Democratic friend. I wouldn't want anyone to have to go through what I've had to go through. And um, it, it's just not right. It's not right for them to use your money, your forced dues, in that manner. If a union opposes a spouse of one of their Democratic members, they're risking doing so on behalf of a minority of their members. Republicans only make up about 25% of union membership. And if a union opposes a Republican member's spouse, they're also risking doing so on behalf of a minority. Less than 45% of union members identify as Democrats. The union is speaking for all in a way that they don't speak for all. Most membership organizations stick to the issues where the vast majority of their members agree for this reason. For the unions, their way of doing business could be untenable for them and exposes them to further diminishing. Their membership has already dropped in half from 20% of American workers to 10% in just over 30 years. And it doesn't help when you don't respond to your members. So I actually called the OEA president. Her name was Patricia Frost. At the time, she, of course, wouldn't take my call. And I tried to complain. I said, you know, really, this is... uh, this is ridiculous. I, I have to be in this union and, you know, the OEA is doing something. I This is ridiculous. So um, it was a crucible moment for me, though, because before I kind of didn't have a voice. I didn't want to distinguish myself in any uh, pejorative way. So then I started getting, you know, angry. Uh, you won't take my call. I thought, okay, you, you that's fine. That's fine. I'm fighting back now. So... I I did feel alone for a a time, and I decided to write a couple letters to the editor, which got picked up by the Columbus Dispatch. Fairly nerve-wracking for me, but I thought to myself, if I'm quiet, all these people speak for me. And um, my husband is a really good man, and he does not deserve this, and this is wrong. I was so worried, oh, I'm going to have repercussions at school. But you know what I thought to myself? If you're my friend and and you know who we are, then you'll support me. And because her union stopped supporting her, she decided to stop supporting it. I decided then to be a a fee payer, and I changed my status. So I have to pay still to be in the union to have my collective bargaining. But they give you a certain amount back. Ohio is not a right-to-work state. 
So if your workplace is unionized and you don't want to be a member of a union, you kind of sort of still have to be. As Jade mentioned, your only option is to become what's called a fee payer, where you have to pay the union for what they say are the costs to represent you in any potential legal matters and to negotiate your contract on your behalf, even if you don't want them to. But allegedly, you also no longer have to pay for all the other activities of a union, such as their political lobbying and election efforts, and this would be a good thing. But the reality is, well... If you just look at the OEA and NEA portions of a teacher's dues, a fee payer is forced to pay 97.9% of a regular union member's dues, a difference of only 2.1%. So the Ohio Union, in effect, is saying that only 2.1% of their budget goes to non-representation activities. Hmm, think that adds up? Whatever the reality is, this puny refund creates a strong disincentive for a teacher to leave a union, especially when this can be the result. When you start to speak out about it or talk about it, other teachers try to intimidate you. They make you feel like, well, you can't go against the union. You've got to be in the union. Or if you're against the union, you're against public schools, or you're against the teachers. Wait a minute, I'm not. I just, I don't want to be, don't you guys see all this stuff going on? Nobody, there are a lot of people who are like cows to the slaughter. They do not want to know. So that intimidation factor is people are worried that they'll lose their job or they'll have to work with somebody who's very pro-union. And what I realized is if once you start talking about it, people start they identify you and then they freeze you out like they will be walking down the hall in the, in the school and they you say hello to them as a polite normal person with people skills and they act like they didn't hear you i want to be working in a, in a school where i feel like i have colleagues that respect me and we can go to each other and help each other and you know cross curriculum kinds of uh lessons and those kinds of things so uh, you don't. Nobody wants to be in an organization where nobody will talk to you, right? Right. And what a mom this is! Again, don't get on the wrong side of a fighter like Jade Hamilton. One mom versus the machine. This is our American stories, Jade Hamilton's story, and. This takes courage, folks. I mean, this is the kind of courage that is hard to exhibit, particularly in small towns, and we broadcast from a small town here in Oxford, Mississippi. And when we come back, we're going to hear the rest of this story, Jade Hamilton's story, more after these messages.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we return to the final portion of this incredible One Mom versus the Machine story, Jade Hamilton's story. And when we left off, Jade was expressing the pain of her fellow teachers not talking to her in the hallways because she simply decided to leave the union. Despite this, Jade still chose to opt out of the union and talk to her fellow teachers. But becoming a fee payer was easier said than done. When you opt out, you have a very small window every single year that you have to do. You're opting out. You get a packet in the mail from the OEA. And um, of course, it comes at Christmas time when you are so busy. And what people, I didn't even look for that. I didn't even know what that package was. So it's this packet, and on the third or fourth page are the instructions for how to how to opt out and how to be a fee payer. You have to get it postmarked by January 15th, and so you know you're good to be a fee payer for one year. So you have a very short, small window. A lot of teachers don't even know about it, and they don't make it really easy to figure out how to do it. You have to look for it. So I think on this year. There were instructions on page three, and then there was another, you had to go into like page 15 to, so um, opting out is a chore. The union ought to ask you, it ought to be competitive. It ought to ask you, do you want to be a member? And are we doing a good job? In fact, the state of Wisconsin in 2011 changed their structure so that individuals have the free choice of whether to opt into the union in the first place so that you don't have to opt out. And this really is how every other membership organization in America works. We decide whether to opt in to attend a certain church, the Lions Club, the Chamber of Commerce, or none of them at all. And when you decide not to become a member of these organizations, typically this doesn't happen. Someone put a nail in my tire three times at school. Tragically, the intimidation didn't stop at the grown-up level. My son's math teacher, she, in my son's math class, made a point. And my son was, you know, in high school, he didn't really want to be called out. He didn't want people to know his dad was the representative and she made several references in class about my husband. Oh, and she said, you know, my son's name, and this is your dad, or whatever. Well, he was completely mortified. The health teacher did that, and so did the math teacher. And um, I had to go to our principal and have a meeting with them and say, you know, you can't do that. You You absolutely cannot call my husband's name in your class in your math class or your health class and um, embarrass my son because he he's not a political figure and he doesn't deserve that. That's crossing a line. If you're a teacher of English, a teacher of math, teacher of Spanish, stick on your subject. Teach your subject as best you can. You shouldn't be up there teaching your politics. So uh, I guess in English you could say, well, you know, you got to write a persuasion paper. But don't you feel intimidated if you know your teacher is supporting the Democrat and you want to support the Repu- maybe your parents are Republican? And, you know, teachers this year even have gotten in trouble for 
uh, saying political things after the election. And um, <clears throat> they don't get fired, though. And they don't get, I, I just don't want my kids to be subject to that. I just want them to have um, anonymity and fairness. And so that's been, that's been a little bit touchy. I will be glad when my youngest graduates. So we'll see. And through all of this, Jade wasn't going to let the intimidation stop her. This mom sued them. About that time, I reached out to the National Right to Work Foundation. They, they actually came to talk to me in person and asked me if I wanted to be a part of a lawsuit. It was called Thaxton versus the OEA, and I got to meet about 20 other teachers who were also a part of this lawsuit. Well, this is my first time to be with other people who I didn't feel so alone. They knew, they knew that they were finding out the same kinds of things that I was finding out and sort of sticking their necks out. And that was empowering. Their lawsuit challenged the amount that the union was forcibly charging fee payers like them. These teachers believed that the refund amount off of the standard union dues should have been higher. That the union was unconstitutionally charging them for non-representation activities that they can't charge them for, such as public relations, union organizing, and lobbying. These seemingly lowly teachers who took on an all-powerful union in a three-year epic fight turned out to be right and won. The Thaxton got, uh, I think, as a fee payer before, you got $105 back. Now you get 235 or around there. Um, so it doubled. That was the change that the union agreed to in a settlement. And the settlement talks were something else. It was... Um, it was an education in itself watching the OEA lawyers argue. And they wanted us to, um, they actually approached, the OEA lawyers approached our, the any, the National Right to Work lawyers and said, oh, just, just let's, let's bargain this deal for a couple of years and, and, you know, we'll see you back in court and you'll get paid again. And they were kind of trying to cut a deal under the, under the table, but none of those teachers were in it for money. They were all in it to have change. And so every single one of us said, we don't want it to just be effective for two years or four years. We want it to be, we're doing this for teachers that can't speak out or won't speak out, people going forward. And so um, we did get it that was 30 years effective. And it was for everyone who wants to be a fee payer, past present and future not just for the plaintiffs as the unions will often try to limit it to they weren't able to this time and although jade has achieved something significant and more importantly can sleep easy at night knowing that she followed her conscience this burden that's been thrust upon her has been a gigantic waste of her time and emotional energy at the end of the day 
given her true mission in life. I want to teach. I don't want to get involved in this huge ordeal. I just want to teach. And I enjoy my job, and I'm very grateful for my job, and I don't want to make anybody mad. I want to be on a team. Is that too much to ask? Reporting for Our American Stories, I'm Alex Cortez. And great job on that piece, Alex. I just want to teach. And Jade also said, opting out of the union is a chore. I mean, heck, we have to opt in to email, for goodness sake. And last but not least, the bullying point. We hear about it at schools all the time, working on bullying, anti-bullying this, anti-bullying that. But this one teacher went up against her union, and they just bullied her and bullied her nonstop. God bless. Jade Hamilton, one mom versus the machine. Don't get in the way of these moms, and don't bully them. They're coming back at you. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, Jade Hamilton's story. This is Our American Stories. As you've come to expect, we tell stories about everything. The good, the bad, and the difficult in life. And when we do the difficult, it's always about how we rise above difficult circumstances and how those difficult circumstances shape us and test us. And ultimately, well, in the end, it's who we are, how we get through those kinds of things. And... All October month long is Infant Loss Month. It was declared in 1988 by then-President Ronald Reagan. And it honors the lives lost through miscarriage, stillborn birth, sudden infant death syndrome, and other such tragedies. And it's personal to many of the folks on this staff. We've all or many of us have had experience with this. Uh, My wife's best friend in Baltimore, Pam, lost not one but two babies to a miscarriage The first was tough, and the second one, I'd never seen that kind of grief, and we worried, actually, for Pam's life. So depressed was she, and she ultimately came out of it and had more kids and more babies. But boy, it was a tough year or two. And so that's why we bring you these stories, and write to us at ouramericannetwork.org, and we'll help you record your story when we share these things. It makes all of us feel less alone. In today's story, we hear from Samantha Banerjee, who experienced a stillborn birth with her daughter, Alana Marie. She has black hair, I remember someone calling out brightly. I'd expected this part to be a nightmare, knowing in advance that our baby wasn't going to make it. I'd expected terrifying. I'd expected somber. I'd expected heartbreak. I'd at the very least expected hard work and physical exhaustion. 
but what I didn't expect was joy. I didn't expect to feel focused and strong and confident as I brought my baby into this world. I didn't expect unadulterated wonder and appreciation and awe at the tiny little miracle my body had produced. I certainly didn't expect that my baby girl would come out warm and soft and glowing, looking like a perfect sleeping little angel, that her face would so much resemble her father that it would take my breath away, that my heart would immediately burst with love for every inch of her flawless little body, as devastatingly still as it was. It turned out Alana's birth wasn't a nightmare at all. It was beautiful. It felt right, everything I'd hoped for. Everything except the fact that she hadn't taken her first breath and never would. So we told her we loved her. We gave her grandparents a chance to hold her. And then we said goodbye. We left the hospital the next evening for my parents' house. Walking out those doors with empty arms was one of the hardest things I have ever had to do. And the empty car seat in the back seat was a grim reminder of everything we'd lost. Amazingly, it only been 24 hours since we'd arrived at the hospital the evening before. It felt like a lifetime. We spent the next few days surrounded by family and friends, everyone grieving together. We finally delivered the surprise that we'd been safeguarding for months, that we'd chosen to give Alana the middle name Marie after my grandma, who we loved so much. Of course, Grandma Marie was honored. We were amazed at how much we managed to smile and laugh in between the tears and heartache. Everyone pulled together, Deep and I, our parents, our brothers, all our cousins and aunts and uncles. Everyone united in our shared misery. This family had been dealt a great blow, but we would get through it, together. We broke the heart-rending news to our friends slowly over the next several days. We contacted the funeral home to make arrangements for Alana's memorial. We went home and spent the week preparing. On the night before the memorial, we decided last minute to visit the funeral home and spend a few hours with Alana as we finished up assembling the photo boards for the wake. We couldn't believe we'd managed to fill three full poster boards with memories. We shared each of them with Alana, told her again how much we loved her and would miss her, stroked that soft, soft skin while we still had the chance. Even a week later, her skin still glowed. It broke our hearts how beautiful she looked, even in death. The following morning, we held a wake, a full Catholic mass, and a burial. My brother, Mikey, delivered a touching eulogy, a testament to how much this little girl meant to all of us before she'd even had a chance to live. And we buried Alana, perfect in her tiny white casket, in the same plot as my other grandma, in my favorite cemetery in my hometown, where, no kidding, I used to like to play as a kid, much to my own mother's dismay. We felt very good about everything, it brought us a lot of closure and gave us an opportunity to honor the person she would have been, the person she was already to those closest to her. Some days, this entire pregnancy feels like a dream, a happy dream filled with hope that ended in an unthinkable nightmare. But then we woke up and went back to our lives as they were. It's an eerie feeling, but the hard truth is that it was not a dream at all. Everyone keeps asking how we're doing, and we're not really sure how to answer that question. Okay, we say, or we're hanging in there. The truth is, the grief comes and goes. Sometimes it's absolutely devastatingly crushing, like a mountain of sorrow sitting on my chest. 
and sometimes it's surprisingly mercifully absent. After all, it's hard not to smile when you're surrounded by the people you love, even if one of them is conspicuously absent. But the gaping hole in our lives where Alana should be is never far from mind. We can push it to the side for a time, but eventually it sucks us back in, laughing cruelly as we struggle just to stay afloat of our tears. We know that it will get easier, eventually, but we also know that it will never be right. We will always be missing something, someone, and there's nothing that we can do to change that. That's probably the hardest part. We want so badly to fix this, but there simply is no cure. It's taking a while for that to really sink in, for us to really come to terms with everything that's happened. And every time I come to the realization, again, that there's no way she's ever coming back, that I really am not going to wake up from this nightmare, that this is now my life, well, it just hurts all over again. But we just press on. What else can we do? We're doing everything we can to remember Alana. We've saved all her mementos in a keepsake box in our bedroom. We got those photo boards from the wake laminated and we'll share them someday with Alana's siblings so they'll know the story of the big sister who came before them. We planted trees in her honor and are getting a portrait painted so we can see her smile. I wear a necklace every day with her birthstone, which her father had bought in advance of her birth to me as a gift, hoping that I would someday pass it on to Alana herself. We filled out her baby book, sent out birth announcements, basically did all the things we would have done anyway, because we want to celebrate her life. She brought so much love to us in the short time she was here. We just want to share that love with whomever's heart is open to receiving it. I'm still in utter disbelief that this happened to us, that this happens to anyone in this day and age. I had of course worried through the whole pregnancy about the possibility of miscarriage or early delivery. Not being able to carry a healthy baby to term was the deepest, darkest fear of the past 28 years of my life. But once we hit full term at 37 weeks, I finally breathed a sigh of relief. No matter what goes wrong now, I told myself, they could take that baby out and she'll be fine. It still amazes me that with all the reading I did, all the education I have, somehow I managed to overlook the entire possibility of a stillbirth that I never knew it could happen to me. The one thing that has brought me the greatest comfort is knowing that in her short life and after her death, I have done everything I could for my daughter. I had a wonderful, happy pregnancy. I nourished her and loved her from the moment I knew she existed. And now that she is gone, I've done everything in my power to honor her memory and cherish the person she was. Of course, I question if there's anything I could have done differently, if I should have known sooner that something was wrong, if I made some kind of terrible mistake. I'm only human after all. But in the end, I know that these doubts stem from my desperate wish for control, from wanting something or someone to blame, even if it's myself. But I know in my heart that this was in God's hands. Try as I might, I cannot control everything. To Alana, I just want to say I love you. We love you. Your presence is already greatly missed and will be for the rest of our days. We will never, ever forget you. And we look forward to the day when we can finally hold you again. We love you so, so much, sweet baby girl. Watch over us. Keep your future brothers and sisters safe. And know that you are always in our hearts.
And thank you for that reading, Samantha. And Samantha asked that we share this note with all of you. Quote, I volunteer with the Star Legacy Foundation, the premier organization dedicated to stillborn research and prevention. It's so, so important to my husband and I to get the word out. Their website is StarLegacyFoundation.org. Again, that's StarLegacyFoundation.org. I would be so very grateful if you'd check it out. And thank you again, Samantha Banerjee, and the experience she had with stillborn birth, her daughter, Alana Marie. The empty car seat in the back was a grim reminder of what we lost. That just struck me. And that'll happen the rest of her life. There'll be those reminders. And we know that when people say closure. I just always laugh at that. It's just the silliest thing. My mom died four years ago. I haven't come close to closure. And always the reminders are there. But there was this. She brought so much love to us while she was here. And so there you have it. Samantha's story. Alana Marie's story. Here on Our American Stories. <laughs> 